Hello and welcome back to the Orb Greatness Podcast, episode 1.9, Here the Same Hell is Hope. Last time we discussed Che earning his medical degree from the University of Buenos Aires before taking off on another adventure. We then discussed a brief history of Guatemala to set the stage for the 1954 Guatemalan coup. This time that coup will actually happen, and Dr. Ernesto Guevara will finally be given the nickname that he made famous. An Invitation to Travel by Che Guevara, December 1954 Sister, it's a long way to go. The road is long and the present uncertain. Tomorrow is ours. Do not stay on the side of the road. Quench your feet in this eternal dust. I know your fatigue and your distress so great. I know that in the fight your blood will be opposed, and I know that you would rather die than harm it. To the reconquest they see, not to the slaughter. If you disdain the rifle, hold the faith. If faith fails you, he will utter a sob. If you cannot cry, do not cry. Go ahead, mate. Even if you do not have weapons to deny the North, I do not invite you into regions of illusion. There will be no gods, no paradises, no demons, perhaps dark death without a cross marking it. Help us, sister. Do not let fear stop you. Let's put heaven in hell. Do not look at the clouds, the birds, or the wind. Our castles have roots in the ground. Look at the dust the earth has, the injustice hungry for the human essence. Here this same hell is hope. I do not tell you there, behind that hill. I do not tell you there, where dust has lost. I do not tell you, today, so many days seen. I say, come, give me your warm hand that know my wiped tears. Sister, mother, companion, comrade, this road leads to battle. Leave your tiredness, leave your fears. Leave your little daily anxieties. What does the acrid powder matter? What do the pitfalls matter? What does it matter that your children do not hear the call? To your jail of greenbacks, we are going to look for them. Comrade, follow me. It's time to march. Ernesto Guevara arrived in Guatemala City on December 24, 1953, full of optimism. He was finally in a city that was actively fighting the yoke of capitalism and he would get to learn at the feet of the masters how to be a tried-and-true revolutionary doctor. He dreamed of heading off to the rural parts of Guatemala and setting up shop at some clinic where he could spend all day and night taking care of the working-class proletariat, who had been taken advantage of by the United Fruit Company for far too long. The revolutionary Arben's government truly cared about their people. They would welcome a bright young doctor like Che into the organization with open arms and soon enough he would have the equipment and resources to treat the peasants who could not afford their own medical care because of their sorry wages from the banana plantation. That was just a dream though. By the time Che arrived in the capital, the leftist revolution was entering its 10th year, but its international scrutiny was at an all-time high thanks to the election of Jacobo Arbenz. The medical profession, like so many other skilled professions, had formed a professional union, and the only way to get a job within that profession was to join the union. Unfortunately for Che, when he attempted to join, he was told that he would have to revalidate his Argentine medical degree in Guatemala by going back to medical school in Guatemala for a year. The last thing Che wanted to do was go back to the classroom when he had only graduated a mere six months prior. He refused to go that route, 
and instead sought paying work with mostly odd jobs while searching for a rare position in the medical field that would be desperate enough to hire him without the union backing. The six months he lived in Guatemala, before the U.S.-backed Castillo Armas invaded and forced Arbenz out of power, would not yield a medical position for Dr. Guevara. As such, he completely failed in his goal to learn the ropes of a revolutionary doctor. However, the success of Che's time in Guatemala would not come to be measured by his experience as a doctor, instead by the contacts he would make and the expertise gained by watching a coup unfold before his eyes. Arguably the most important person Che would meet in Guatemala was Hilda Gadea. She would go on to be Che's first wife and bear him his first child, but more important at the time was how incredibly well-connected she was in Guatemala City. Hilda had been a member of Peru's political party, American Popular Revolutionary Alliance, or APRA, which was a leftist political organization. Hilda had held the distinction of being the first female secretary of the economy of the Executive National Committee and was one of the leaders of the youth wing of the party. The APRA had been initially founded in Peru in 1930 and in the early days was primarily about anti-imperialism and pan-Americanism. The party had several swings of legitimacy in Peru and had periods of being a legal party and an outlawed party. Many of the youth who had joined along with Hilda espoused Marxist views, which helped the party get on the bad side of the United States and similarly on the bad side of any Peruvian leader. In 1948, factions of the APRA led a revolt in Calau that would quickly be put down and result in the party again being outlawed. Several party members that were involved or sympathetic to those involved were exiled from the country. Hilda was one such party member. She sought refuge in leftist-friendly revolutionary Guatemala. When Arbenz was elected in 1950, she was able to start working with his government while she awaited the chance to return to her native Peru. Che's friend, Ricardo Rojo, would introduce Guevara to Gadea, but it certainly was not a love at first sight. Gadea would later write, On our first meeting, Guevara made a negative impression on me. He seemed too superficial to be an intelligent man, egotistical and conceited. Similarly, Che thought of Hilda as plain and initially only sought a platonic relationship, being impressed by her political knowledge and vast network of connections. Shortly after their meeting, Hilda introduced Che to Professor Alberto Torres. Professor Torres was a Nicaraguan political exile. His daughter worked with Hilda, and his son was the Secretary General of Guatemala's Communist Youth Organization, which made each of them people of interest for Che. While each member of the Torres family was interesting in their own right, the main advantage of knowing them was that their household had become the central hub for political exiles from countries throughout Latin America. Che felt so alive to be surrounded by like-minded individuals who were unafraid to speak their minds. These exiles understood the struggle of being far from home all because of their political ideology. Che thrived in the Torres household. Previously at gatherings in Argentina, Che had always felt the need to shock his fellow party guests with his behavior and beliefs. Here he was finally able to engage intellectually in conversations with people who would take him seriously and not think him crazy if he suggested picking up a gun to fight for an ideal. In fact, on his very first trip to the Torres household, Che met four Cuban exiles who had done just that. Last episode, I very briefly mentioned the failed attack on the Makana barracks in Cuba that occurred on July 26, 1953, the one led by Fidel Castro. While Fidel had been captured and imprisoned, others had eluded capture and sought refuge inside the Guatemalan embassy in Havana. The Arbenz administration chose to grant political asylum to the Makaristas. 
The Cuban government was not happy with this news, and you can imagine how the United States, who was already wary of Arbenz's politics, viewed the move. For the Cuban exiles, though, it made them VIPs at all the dinner parties and other special events hosted by someone in the Guatemalan exile community. Che was immediately impressed by the group. He had come to Guatemala to see revolution in action, and between being unable to immediately find a job and being underwhelmed by the revolution's effect on the capital city, Che was overjoyed to meet a group of people who were actually living their country's revolution. Out of the group, the only one I'm going to bother you with the name of is Antonio Lopez, nicknamed Nico. Nico was the quasi-leader of the Cuban exiles, but he was 100% committed to his leader, Fidel Castro. He would tell anyone who would listen that his stay in Guatemala was going to be brief, because as soon as Fidel was out of prison, he would call Nico to join him, and Nico would finally be able to resume his work on the revolution. He stated this opinion as pure fact, and he spoke with such exuberance and conviction that anyone who stayed to listen to him was forced to believe. Che so admired the straightforward optimism and commitment to their goals that he told each of them how to get in contact with him if they ever needed anything. A short time after the first meeting, Nico would take Che up on the offer. One of Nico's friends and fellow Cuban exiles had fallen ill. The man had developed sharp stomach pains, and nothing the Cubans tried had helped in the slightest. Che rushed over to their hostel and examined the man. He realized that the situation was a serious one, and he called for an ambulance to bring the man to the hospital. He traveled with to the hospital and explained to the paramedics what he knew. After a couple days in the hospital, the Cuban exile would improve and see a full recovery. After that harrowing experience, Che saw Nico and the other Cubans nearly every day for the remainder of his time in Guatemala. They would become fast friends and share many informal conversations. Nico Lopez is particularly important to our story for three reasons. One, during the course of their growing friendship, Nico taught Ernesto about Cuba, its problems, their struggles for revolution, and about his leader, Fidel Castro. Two, Nico would be the one to introduce Che to Raul Castro in Mexico in June of 1955. Three, and perhaps most importantly, Nico was the one who gave Che his nickname. You see, Che is basically an Argentine-specific slang word used predominantly in Buenos Aires. It means something akin to hey, or hey you. Ernesto used the phrase a ton, and Nico started calling him El Che Argentino, likely as a way to poke fun at Guevara's speaking habit. The Cubans started to refer to Guevara as Che more and more frequently. That would be especially true after he joined the 26th of July movement. Guevara, from an early age, had shown an attachment to nicknames, and he was keen to embrace a nickname from his new friends. He gladly dropped the names Fuser and Chancho for the catchier title of Che. Now that I've finally introduced the origins of the nickname, I can finally stop feeling anachronistic when I refer to him as Che. The next few months became rather monotonous for Che. He had met Dr. Luis Penelor, who was a Venezuelan malaria specialist and had a small clinic in Guatemala City. Dr. Penelor gave Che a small position in his laboratory, but it was not a full-time medical post and certainly did not pay enough to keep him from racking up a new bill at the pension where he was staying. He continued to look for full-time work, however only working in the morning did afford him the chance to explore the city and make assessments of the course of the revolution. In a letter home to his mother, he described his typical day. In the morning, I go to the health department and work a few hours at the laboratory. In the afternoon, I go and study at a library or museum. In the evening, I read medicine or something else and attend to domestic tasks. I drink mate when there is any, and I engage in endless discussions with the comrade Hilda Gadea. 
Some parts of this rhythm she enjoyed, other parts less so. He desperately wanted a job that would actually be of some use to the revolution, whether that be a full-fledged medical post, a position working with the rural lepers, or, once the fighting began, as an armed civilian resistance against the invaders. He would not receive any such position. His frustration with not getting a job and worry about his economic straits at times came out in his writing. The monotony of the days going by were summed up by Che as days without shame or glory. In the six months he was in Guatemala prior to the coup, he really only had two promising leads for positions that would have seen him break into, as described by Che, the tight and oligarchic circle that was the Guatemalan medical profession without joining the medical union. The first job prospect was a full-on offer, but it came with a condition. Hilda worked with a man named Herbert Zessig. Herbert was a leader of the youth wing of the Guatemalan Party of Labor, or PGT, which was the Guatemalan Communist Party. Hilda asked Herbert for help in securing a job for Che. The party had a position in the Petén region of Guatemala open. Herbert spoke to the party leaders and got them to agree to allow Che to assume the post. In exchange, Che would have to join the PGT. Hilda describes Che's reaction in her book, My Life with Che, The Making of a Revolutionary. When Hilda told Che, he snapped at her. You tell him, Herbert, that when I want to join the party, I will do so on my own initiative, not out of any ulterior motive. Hilda and Che called Herbert together to tell him off, but in the end, Che did all the talking. Consequently, he did not get the job. However, this was the moment that Hilda started to see Che differently, more than just a friend. She admired his reaction. He may have been broke and desperate for a job in his field, but he would not break his morals nor his principles for a job. The second job prospect was also in the Petten department, though specifically the eastern jungle region of the department. Che desperately wanted the job, even if the concept of living in a moist and humid area of the country made him worry about his asthma. So that was part of the appeal. He wanted to learn the way of the revolutionary doctor, and part of that process would be defeating his own frailness. In February of 1954, Che had begun a casual fling with a nurse by the name of Julia Miha. Julia used her connections as a nurse to get Che the job interview for the job in the Petten. After the interview, Che expressed optimism that he would get the job, but he was told that his appointment had to be approved by the Guatemalan Medical Union. With a real job prospect in hand, Che arranged a meeting with the president of the union. He left the meeting without a guarantee, but an agreement to at least consider him, which was the best news he had received in months. He responded by announcing to those around him that he would soon be off to the Petten. With the prospect of Che leaving Guatemala City, Hill decided to express her changing feelings to Che. In his diary, Che wrote, Hill de declared her love in a postulary and a practical form. I was with a lot of asthma. If not, I might have fucked her. I warned her that all I could offer her was a casual contact, nothing definitive. She seemed very embarrassed. The little letter she left me is very good. Too bad she is so ugly. She is 27. Nothing would come of the potential post in the Petten. Che would continue meeting with the president of the medical union, but over time the meetings became less frequent, less pleasant, and soon the president was mostly brushing him to the side. It would seem that there was no way around revalidating and joining the union, or in joining a political party to get a favorite appointment, neither of which Che was willing to do. Instead, he lingered, unable to find a job, unable to leave because he had no money, and unwilling to compromise because of his ideals. One quick aside about Che's job prospects. 
I always find it rather intriguing how much Che railed against and complained about Guatemala's requirement for membership in the medical union. He was known for complaining about the way the United Fruit Company treated its workers, and he fully supported those workers' right to protest and fight against those injustices. But when he actually encountered a strong union that protected the local employees from foreign domination, he hated it. Just one of the inconsistencies that makes for a fascinating depth of character. During this time period, Che frequently had arguments with his friend Ricardo Rojo about the best way to enact change. Rojo argued for democratic change, whereas Che was convinced the only way to victory was violent revolution. He wanted to see the working class empowered, and yet he believed that no political party that held elections could remain revolutionary. Almost believing in the idea of a quasi-enlightened despot, I suppose we could call it the Marxist despot. We will have plenty of time to discuss how his Marxist ideals meet up with the real-world actions once we reach the point in the narrative. Once we reach the point in the narrative that Che actually assumes political power, just noting some of them now so that you can make a mental note for later that the seemingly contradictory ideas in Che's later nature manifested quite early in his ideological life. Despite failing to secure a medical post, the time was not completely lost for his goals of becoming a social doctor. The time spent in the lab, combined with his observations on the revolutionary medical community, inspired Che to begin writing a book. He had given the book the tentative title of The Role of the Doctor in Latin America. He freely admitted that the title and content was rather pretentious, but similar to Notas de Vieja, the process of articulating his thoughts into words and writing them down helped Che develop his worldview more fully. He would not complete the book but it was a nice precursor to his guerrilla warfare that he would publish in 1961 and his episodes on the Cuban Revolutionary War, published in 1963. The role of the doctor in Latin America was to highlight the lack of state protection and the scarcity of resources that the medical profession faced. He had argued his thesis for a commitment to social medicine and argued how important a socially forward doctor was in raising awareness of class consciousness. In his opinion, the only sustainable way for Latin America to move forward was to throw off the bonds of colonialism and embrace socialism. Throughout the months of Che's job searching, the United States continued its preparations for action that would see the Arbenz government stripped of its power. In August of 1953, President Eisenhower authorized Operation PB Success to overthrow the Guatemalan government. One of the most interesting sources on Operation PB Success is the CIA report that was published by agency historian Nicholas Colother in 1994 and declassified in 1997. While many of the actions and results have become widely known to the world, the declassified report gives great insight into the thoughts and process that the agency actually had in regards to Guatemala. The CIA website hosts the report in case you would like to see it. I will be posting a link to it on the Aura of Greatness podcast Facebook page which I'd encourage you to like if you are on Facebook. When the report was declassified, Chief Historian J. Kenneth MacDonald wrote the following. Nick Colother's study of PB success reveals both why the CIA thought PB success had been a model operation and why this model later failed so disastrously as a guide for an ambitious attempt to overthrow Fidel Castro at the Bay of Pigs in 1961. As we discuss the details of the Guatemalan coup, it will be interesting to note the similarities to the eventual Bay of Pigs invasion, and remember that Che was there learning and making assessments for how he would have responded if he was in charge. Seven years later, when he is a leader in Cuba, 
he will assist Fidel Castro in defending their revolution. Operation TB Success selected Castillo Armas to be the leader of the coup. Armas was a former lieutenant colonel in the Guatemalan military. Last time I mentioned that President Arevalo survived upwards of 25 coup attempts during his six years as president of Guatemala. The most noteworthy occurred in 1949 and was led by the chief of the armed forces, Francisco Arana. Castillo Armas supported Arana and as a result of the failed coup, he was exiled to Honduras. Armas became the leader of the exile community, and after Arbenz was elected, some of the more conservative factions inside Guatemala started to think of Armas as a leader as well. He quickly came to the notice of the CIA, who contacted him about being a potential asset for them. In 1952, Operation PB Fortune was approved, and it was determined that money and equipment would be given to Armas to invade and attempt a coup. But due to unforeseen circumstances, the operation and invasion were called off. The unforeseen circumstances included foreign powers learning of United States involvement, a reluctance to go against Franklin Delano Roosevelt's good neighbor policy, and Truman's announcement that he would not be seeking re-election, which created an unknown atmosphere for foreign involvement. While the operation was scrapped, Castillo Armas continued to agitate against President Arbenz, and the CIA kept him on the payroll which gave him $3,000 a week and allowed him to maintain a small military force. President Eisenhower would win the election, and his presidential administration had promised a more hard-line approach toward communism, and after the success of the 1953 Iranian coup, the CIA felt emboldened to revive Operation PB Fortune. Agency reports described Arbenz as brilliant and cultured, but it was feared that between his friendship with the communist Jose Fortuny and the land reform bill he championed that communism was sure to take over the country of Guatemala. Communism gaining a foothold in the Western Hemisphere was deemed as unacceptable. The new CIA operation dedicated to the overthrow of President Arbenz was named Operation PB Success. After some debate, Castillo Armas was selected as the person who would lead the rebel armies. He was deemed the most trustworthy of the candidates by the CIA. He was deemed to be the most trustworthy of the candidates by the CIA. They figured he could be controlled once in power, and he was already on the CIA payroll. Armas was given enough money to recruit approximately 150 mercenaries, primarily Guatemalan exiles. It was believed that a native army would be better received by the citizens of the country, and hopefully those citizens would rally around them once they had some success. The CIA set up training camps in both Honduras and Nicaragua. The United States then signed military agreements with both countries so that they could move weapons and bombers into the countries without suspicion from the other world superpowers. Armas referred to his band of rebels as the Army of Liberation. While certain parts of the operation were kept secret, part of the plan involved making sure Arbenz knew that the invasion was coming. The CIA wanted the people of Guatemala to lose faith in Arbenz and in turn lose faith in the revolution. In addition to supplying, training, and paying the Army of Liberation, the CIA engaged in a war of propaganda. They flew over the country of Guatemala and dropped flyers and leaflets that contained information that would shake the legitimacy of the Arbenz regime. Rather than viewing the incoming invasion as a coup d'etat, they wanted the people to think of it more as a fait accompli and to think of the invading army as liberators. While CIA Director Alan Dulles readied the military and propaganda side of the operation, his brother, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles, readied the political side. In March of 1954, the Organization of American States, or OAS, 
held its 10th Inter-American Conference in Caracas, Venezuela. The OAS was founded in 1948 for purpose of regional solidarity and cooperation. At the time, it consisted of 21 independent nations from both North and South America. On March 26, 1954, near the end of the conference, the organization passed a majority resolution which justified armed intervention in any member state dominated by communism, as they would then be deemed a hemispheric threat. Mexico and Argentina abstained from the vote. Guatemala, as the presumed target, voted against, but the other 18 nations voted for it. With the political and military sides going swell, the last piece was public opinion. The Eisenhower presidential election campaign had run with a message against the Korean War, communism, and corruption. He won a major victory with 55% of the vote while carrying 39 of 48 states. Everyone liked Ike. His vice president was Richard Nixon, who at the time was known predominantly for his stance against communism. It was expected that President Eisenhower would step up the United States' role in the Cold War and stem the tide of communism. It was that atmosphere that the United Fruit Company began their propaganda campaign to the American people against the Arbenz regime. By the time the coup would start, the American people felt very strongly that for their own safety and security, President Arbenz had to be deposed. And just like that, the stage was set. The final nail in the coffin occurred when Guatemala purchased 2,000 tons of arms and ammunition from the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic. The United States had tried to stop the shipment, but the MS LFM cargo ship snaked its way across the ocean and successfully delivered the guns. The May 1954 issue of Times Magazine did an extensive article titled Red Gun Running about the shipment. The article referred to the recipient as Communists infiltrated Guatemala into the guns as communist weapons. Purchase and delivery was proof positive of Soviet bloc involvement in Guatemala for the United States government. The State Department denounced the arms shipment and Eisenhower warned that the Czech arms would be used to establish a communist dictatorship in Central America and the U.S. controlled Panama Canal would be its first target. Castillo Armas was given the green light and the date of the invasion was set. After Che's last visit with the president of the medical union, he left feeling as though there was no chance he would be receiving a job anytime soon, so he decided it was time to do some exploring. Despite the fact that he owed three months' rent to the pension where he was living, Che negotiated his leave with an IOU. He and Hilda spent the night together in San Juan Sacatepez. It was the first night they would spend alone together. Che then left for an adventure into El Salvador. He visited the capital city of San Salvador, then went to see the pre-Columbian Pipal Indian Pyramid of Tazamal. He had briefly considered visiting Honduras, but had his visa request denied, so instead he went back to Guatemala. On his way back to the capital city, he first stopped at the Indian ruins of Carigua in southern Guatemala. He took a train to Puerto Barrios, where he got a job on a road construction crew to replenish a bit of money and earn a train ticket back to Guatemala City. By the time he made it back to Guatemala City, the capital was a completely different atmosphere than it had been when he had left. The CIA had increased its efforts to make the people of Guatemala turn on President Arbenz. They placed newspaper articles, propaganda films, and booklets that warned of the communist threat. This had followed months of daily newspaper articles from prominent Arbenz opponents like the United Fruit. Interesting, one of the first complaints that Che had made about the Guatemalan Revolution was their continued freedom of the press. In January of 1954, he wrote to his Aunt Beatrice, If I were our Benz, I'd close them, the presses. 
down in five minutes. He felt that the free presses only led to instability for the revolutionary government. In June, as tensions between Guatemala and the United States continued to heighten, the next complaint was that if he were in charge, he would have used those 2,000 tons of arms and ammunition to arm the people. On June 14th, Che would celebrate his 26th birthday, four days before Armas and his Liberation Army would invade. As the Army of Liberation invaded, American mercenaries would fly bombing missions over Guatemala. The first airstrike on Guatemala City excited Che. In a letter to his mother, he wrote, The bombs are falling from the sky like raindrops, and all are ankle-deep in blood, and I'm having as much fun as a monkey. As he watched the people run in the streets, he confessed that he licked his lips with pleasure. The struggle had come to him, and he was glad to be there for it. The next few days, though, revealed a harsher reality. The people began to lose faith in our bends, and few thought that he would triumph and stay in power. Che refused to go down without a fight, though. He joined the Health Brigade to assist with the Medical Area and the Youth Brigade. As part of the Brigade, he assisted with nocturnal patrols that made sure no one turned on any lights for fear that they would then be bombed. The resistance would not last long. President Arbenz was forced to resign by the military on June 27, 1954, and on July 3rd, Castillo Armas entered Guatemala City. On July 7, 1954, Armas was sworn in as President of Guatemala. His rule would not last long, though as he was assassinated just three years later. Fifty-seven years after the Guatemalan coup, in October of 2011, the government of Guatemala would issue a formal apology to the surviving members of the Arbenz family. In the aftermath of the coup, Che sought and was granted asylum inside the Argentine embassy. At first, he had planned to continue his activities outside the embassy. He wanted to watch the invasion and the new government come to life. He believed as an Argentine with no political connections to the Arbenz government, he had nothing to fear. But when Hilda was arrested for her role in the government, she was asked about the whereabouts of Che. She had refused to provide any information. When he had stopped by not knowing she had been arrested, her flatmates told him what they had asked. He realized that he was in a far more tenuous position than he had realized. He did not know it at the time, but his actions had caught the attention of the CIA. During the bombings, he had asked government officials for weapons so that he could organize a last-ditch effort to save the Arbenz regime. He had been denied, but the request had been noted. David Atlee Phillips, the CIA's eventual chief operator of the Western Hemisphere, had been a relatively new agent at the time of the Guatemalan coup. He worked as a full-time operative in Latin America. Phillips later recalled finding a note a couple weeks after the coup had ended about a 25-year-old Argentine physician who had attempted to fight. The information on the physician was very limited, only a single sheet of paper. Phillips turned the sheet over to his assistant and said, I guess we better have a file on him. That single sheet of paper began the start of the CIA's file, Ernesto Guevara, known as Che. Over the next 13 years, that single sheet of paper would grow into one of the thickest files in the CIA's global records. Inside the embassy of Argentina, things cooled off from the heat of the invasion. He met some more interesting people, spent more time with Nico Lopez, but mostly he just bided his time until he could leave. Eventually he applied for an exit permit to Mexico. It was time to continue his adventures. He figured that Mexico would be the most interesting and also the safest place to travel for someone of his ideals. Nico Lopez and the other Cubans were also planning to head for Mexico. They had been ordered to meet there for Fidel's movement and they longed for the chance to get back to fighting for their own country. 
As Che was making plans for what would come next, Hilda had been released following her arrest. She had not yet been granted permission to leave the country. She wanted to be with Che, but was worried that if he left for Mexico without her, she might lose him forever. Che seemed to have been two minds about Hilda at the time. To her, he showed no concern about their separation. Instead, he made cavalier assurances that the two would meet up in Mexico and marry. They even traveled back to San Juan Sacapez for a picnic and what Che described as a profusion of fondles and a superficial screw. In his journal, he wrote, I believe I'll take advantage of the fact that she can't leave yet to split definitively. After that final tryst, Che would leave Guatemala for Mexico. This occurred in mid-September of 1954. Secretary of State Dulles had tried to convince Castillo Armas not to allow safe passage to any of the people who had sought asylum in the embassies. His plan was to allow them safe passage only if they agreed to go to Moscow. Secretary Dulles figured that in Moscow they would be contained and no longer threaten America's backyard. Castillo Armas resisted the breach of international decorum, though. Armas was full bore for anti-communist laws and programs within his country, but he refused to hurt people or reroute the people who were leaving. The danger that Secretary Dulles feared would actually come to pass, as many of the asylees would regroup in Mexico and lead various revolutions and resistance movements. Not least, the Cuban Revolution, which we will spend many of our remaining episodes discussing at length. That will do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed Che's time in Guatemala, and maybe learned something about the Guatemalan coup. If so, please help me out by rating the show on iTunes. If not, or if you just have a comment, send me an email to oraofgreatnesspodcast at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to take note of your insights. Next time, we will follow Che to Mexico, where he will get married, meet Fidel Castro, and join the 26th of July movement. So be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app, whether that be Acast, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or what have you. Additionally, if you would like to see various pictures or articles that are related to Che, be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash oraofgreatnesspodcast. Additionally, if you are interested in learning more about Latin American history, I would recommend the wonderful Latin American History Podcast. You should be able to either search it in your podcast app, otherwise I'll, I'll share a link to it on Facebook. It should be noted that I am no way affiliated with the podcast, but I have enjoyed it thus far. It is still a relatively new podcast, only about seven episodes in, but if you enjoyed my podcast, I think you would also enjoy this one. Alright, I won't take up any more of your time today, so until next time, thank you for listening to the Aura of Greatness podcast, episode 1.9, Here This Same Hell is Hope. Cheers.